today we kind of make a shift to more of the practical on how do we be on, how can we be on mission? What is left to accomplish, right? What has been accomplished? And so I'm going to give you a lot of stats and data and with every statistical, and you know, if, if you have, there's any type A people in here, you know this, that every, you know, take every stat with a grain of salt, but it will give us an idea of what has been done. And it's going to be helpful for us too, as we think about where is God leading us as a faith family? Where is God leading us to invest into financially? Where we, we invest our manpower? Where we invest our people? Um, where do we put our attention to for how to see God's name be glorified among the nations? So I want to start locally, okay? What is the status of God's mission here locally? We have about, and there's going to be some slides on the screen for you to follow along with, um, and they're going to move pretty quick. So if you're a note taker, get ready, Okay. We have about 363,000 people here in Bell County. So that's a rough estimate, Uh, 363,000 people. Now, I just had access to data on Baptist churches since we're members of the Bell Baptist Association. And so there are 77 Baptist churches in Bell County. This doesn't include Presbyterian, Methodist, or Assemblies of God. So you can kind of increase these numbers a little bit. So 77 Baptist churches in Bell County. Now, Of those 77 Baptist churches, there are around 32,000 people on a church membership roll at one of those churches. So that's about 9% of the population. Where it gets interesting is when you ask the question, okay, but how many people are actually attending those churches? How many people are actually engaging with the faith family? That number goes down to about 2.9%, 10,000 people. So about 3% of Bell County is actively engaging with a faith family, engaging with the gospel, being encouraged and challenged and reminded of the grace of Jesus Christ. And, you know, if you were part of the launch team, when we started Renal Church, we canvassed several neighborhoods in just this West Temple area. And if you're on a street of about 40 houses, maybe three to four houses on a street, on a given street, were engaged with the church. And so there's a lot of people in Bell County who are not engaging with a faith family. Maybe they went to church when they were a kid and they don't go anymore. Maybe they've never been engaged with the gospel before. And where it gets even more interesting is a couple years ago, a group named Barna did some research on the most post-Christian cities in the U.S. If you don't know what it means to be post-Christian, basically think of it this way, that at one point a, a city valued Christian values. They, they value Jesus. They engage with the church. They agreed on things like the inerrancy of the Bible. They agreed that Jesus dies and rose from the grave, and we can have eternal life because of what he has done. But we see a shift, and this has happened in Europe. We see, we're beginning to see a shift moving from we value the things of Christ to now we disagree on things like the Bible. We disagree on the, the uh, grace of Jesus, our, our need for him. And so this survey was done a couple years ago, and the most post-Christian city in the U.S. was Springfield, Massachusetts. Okay, so that's not surprising. That's in the Northeast. But Temple, Bryan, and the Waco area, so Central Texas, came in at right in the middle, so around number 50. And the only city in the South, so the Bible Butt area, that was more post-Christian than our area was Austin. Right behind Austin, was us. And they asked questions like, have you read the Bible in the last week? Those in Springfield, so number one, said about 87% had not read the Bible 
in the last week. In our area, that number is almost 70% have not read the Bible in the last week. They asked the question, have you attended a church in the last six months? And in Springfield, it was 65% here, almost half. Almost 50% of people had not engaged in a church. They asked the question, have you ever made a commitment to Jesus? In our area, almost four out of 10 people have not made a commitment to Jesus. They asked the question, have you prayed to God in the last week? And almost four, almost three out of 10 people had not prayed to Jesus. And the reality is that our city, I don't know if you've noticed, but our city is growing, like rapidly growing. We're projected to be over 400,000 people sometime in the next few years. But if you look at the attendance of churches in our area, every year pre-COVID, it decreased consistently. And so the reality is, that I don't know if, if you're like me, you grew up kind of in the Bible Belt area, we can get, have this tendency to just assume, which is something we should never do. We just assume they know, our neighbors know the, the gospel. Our neighbors are engaged in a faith family. Our neighbors know the grace of Jesus Christ. The people at HEB or the people we work with know Jesus. But the reality is that may not be true. And so may we be quick to love, quick to be kind. May the gospel be quicker on our mouths than anything else. And so the need in our city is much greater than we, may, than we may think it is. And so that's our city. What about the world? There are about 7.5 billion people in the world, and the most populous countries are China, India, United States, Indonesia, and Brazil. Now, one important thing to know when you, I don't know if you've ever studied missiology or you've engaged with much mission scholarship or the official like, side of missions, but when we talk about missions, a lot of times people will talk about people groups. So instead of saying a country's name, we talk about people groups. What is a people group? Well, in the Bible, when you see that word nations, it's the word ethne, Okay. So ethne, so when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's saying, go and make disciples of all ethnes. Ethne can be traded, uh, translated to mean ethnic group, okay, or people group. So when I say people group, I'm talking about a group of people that have a common history, they have a common language, they have a common belief. So when you talk about Pakistan, so like in our English language, we would say, oh, that's in Pakistan. But in the missions world, Pakistan has 400 people groups. And that's important to know because if we're going to plant a church, I'm not saying we're going to plant a church in Pakistan. This is just for an example. But if you're going to plant a church in Pakistan, you can't just say we're going to reach Pakistan. Because the reality is if you go to one group of people and you bring the gospel to them and you have a, they bring a Bible in their language, then that is, there's going to be a barrier when they try to share that with the next village over because they speak a different language. They have a different history. And so it's not as simple as just saying we're going to reach a country, but we have to think about it in terms of people groups, that each people group needs to hear the gospel. So there are different terms here, okay, three different terms. There's reach people groups in the world, there's unevangelized people groups in the world, and there's unreached people groups in the world. A reach people group, so if we're talking about Pakistan, we'll say you know, there's 10 groups that are reached. If we're talking about that, that means that that group of people in that population, there is more than 2% evangelized, evangelized Christians, meaning they believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, they've been baptized, and they believe, believe in the mission of God making disciples who make 
disciples. And so, of the reached people groups in the world, there are over 7,000 people groups, totaling 3.5 billion people, around 42% of the world. So 42% of the globe, there is, um, there is commonality in the gospel, where these people can go to a church. They probably know a Christian. They have access to hear about the name of Jesus. And if they are lost and they don't know Jesus, they can find a way to learn about him. That's what we think about our area. Like there are lots of churches around here. And so if you are living in one of these neighborhoods around here, you have the opportunity to go and learn about Jesus. You probably know someone um, who knows Jesus at your work. So that's a reach people group. The other one I want to focus on is an unreached people group. Now, unreached people group means that there are 2% or less evangelical Christians. And that number is important because the belief is, and this can kind of vary, the belief is once it gets over that 2%, then the gospel can begin to spread organically. Disciples making disciples. You're more likely to meet a Christian. Now, what makes a people group unreached? It means they have little to no access to the gospel. Little to no access to the gospel. The key word is access. They probably don't know a believer, probably will never meet a Christian. Um, they could or will be persecuted for having faith in Christ. There's no Christian church for them to attend, and they have limited or no access to a Bible in their language. Many people in an unreached people group will be born, live, and die without ever hearing the gospel or having an opportunity to respond to the grace of Jesus. Almost 42% of the world falls in that category. Four out of ten people have no opportunity to hear the name of Jesus. There's a whole other category called an unengaged unreached people group. This means that there is no missionary, no Christian church, no activity towards reaching this people group. No efforts being made to reaching those people. Now, most, of, uh, most unreached people groups live in what's called the 1040 window. Um, you can kind of see it uh, on the screen here in a second. But that's basically 1040 is the latitude, longitude on a map going all the way from West Africa through China. And, and 97% of the world's unreached live um, in that window right there. 97%. It's insane. That is totaling... Um, 4.89 billion people. And 60% of unreached people groups that live in the 1040 window are closed to missionaries. They're closed to the U.S. Meaning me with a Christian studies degree can't just show up and say, I'm here. They're not going to let me in. They don't want me there. Now, there's some interesting projections for 2050. Okay, Now, these are all hypothetical, but if the trends continue, this is what it will be like. By 2050, the number of Muslims will be equal to or more than the number of Christians. By 2050, approximately 40 million people will convert to Christianity. However, 106 million, if the projections continue, 106 million will leave Christianity by 2050. The largest areas of Christian population won't be the U.S., but it will be South America and Sub-Saharan Africa because the gospel is exploding in those areas. In fact, by 2050, four out of every 10 Christians will live in sub-Saharan Africa. So here's a couple of hypothetical observations about how we can engage in this missions. Evangelical Christians, so us who believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus, could provide all the funds needed to plant a church in each 
unreached people group with 0.03% of our income. 0.03%. The church has roughly 3,000 times the financial resources and 9,000 times the manpower needed to finish the Great Commission. Finish it. Where every single people group has a church planted among them, we have all the resources that we need already. If every evangelical gave 10% of their income to missions, we could support 2 million new missionaries. What about how many missionaries there are in the world? What's, what's actually being done? Well, there are about 5.5 million Christian workers in the world. Some of these would call themselves missionaries. Some of them may be doing aid or working for just an organization that reaches out to the world that's Christian-based. But regardless, there's 5.5 million workers. And 4.19 million of those workers are working in reached places in the world. And only 20,000 are working in unreached places in the world. That's less than 1%. Less than 1% of missionaries go to a place where the gospel is not known. There's a lot of reasons for that. There's, it's, it's difficult to get in. You can't just show up. I mean, there's lots of different reasons for that. It's just easier to not go to an unreached part of the world. Roughly 30 times as many missionaries go to a reached place than the unreached. If you break that down, one easy way to remember Um, The religions of the world is to use the acronym THUM, okay? So tribal, Hindu, unreligious, which is largely China, Muslim, and Buddhist. If you break that down, that is one missionary for every tribal people. A lot of times that can be referred to as animism. There is one one missionary for every 179,000 Hindu. One missionary for every... um, Seventy, uh, sorry, 179 Hindu and then 71,000 unreligious. One missionary for every 405,000 Muslims. One missionary for every 260,000 Buddhists. And if you think about this, the ratio for every missionary to every unreached people group persons is one per 216,000. And there are 78,000 Christians for every one unreached people group. There is a great misbalance in our work in the world, in God's work in the world. And traditionally, young people have led the way. College students make, make up almost half of missionaries. College students, over 21 million. This is all pre-COVID. But almost half of missionaries are college students, which means that families, people with careers and skills, have traditionally not answered the call. So that was a lot of numbers and like a fire hose going at you. And you might feel a little bit overwhelmed or discouraged. But I want to remind you, and Matthew's going to preach from the Word in a little bit, but I want to remind you a couple things before I step away. Um, One is, even though there's a lot to be done, a lot has already been done. When you think about South America and Sub-Saharan Africa and the great explosion of Christianity that's happening there, you have to think about it this way. At one point, those places were unreached. At one point, those places were unreached. But people went. People gave. The church made disciples here and sent them out. God is at work in those places. And in places like China, one of those projections for 2050 was that by 2050, Christianity will be the prominent religion in China if the trends continue. And it's very similar in Iran. So there are places in the world 
where the gospel is exploding. And God is doing work. And we've seen it here, right? In our county, in this church. We've seen it. You may be one of them that God has pulled you out, pulled you from death to life, transformed your life, and given you a new identity. It's happening here. We've seen it. And so through all the numbers, we know it can be discouraging, but we have such a good God who is at work. He has not stopped his plan because the numbers look lopsided. He is unfolding his plan as we speak. The foundational truth that we see in the Word and that we're focusing on in this series is that we have a purpose, that God has redeemed us so that we can spread his redemption so that people of all tribes and nations and tongue can bow before resurrected King Jesus and give him the worship that he deserves. This is what you see in the Bible, and we have been renewed for this Mission. We have been renewed. We have received his mercy, not for ourselves, but so that we can spread the fame of our God, make much of Christ across the planet. And you heard our associate Pastor Colton give all of the stats that give us just a snapshot of the state of the mission globally. And we've just sung that we are indeed facing a task, a mission that is still unfinished. And that's true here locally as much as it is in the 1040 window, globally. But the question for us to ponder today is how will we respond? That's, that's what we're going to be considering is as a faith family, how is God calling us to respond? Because the way that we respond to this urgent mission is going to reveal a lot about who we are as a church. What you believe the identity of a church should be is largely going to be connected to how you respond to this urgent mission. And so I want to turn to Matthew 24. We're going to be looking at Believe it or not, just primarily one verse today. Now, I won't preach more than 40 minutes because we already had one sermon today. So today's a little bit different. But we're going to be looking at, in particular, Matthew 24, verse 14. We're going to understand what our identity as a church should be, and in particular, how it's rooted in this mission of God. Now, I don't have time to unpack all of chapter 24 and 25 because that is a massive part of scripture that it talks about the end times. So let me read verse 3 for you. Matthew 24, verse 3. As he, being Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age. So you have disciples asking Jesus, when you come back in full glory to fully establish your kingdom, 
what is going to happen? Like, what are, what are the signs? Like, what is going to look like at the end of time? So this is in the theological category of eschatology. You're like, what's, that's a big word. It's not, big. whatever. The Greek word eschatos just means end. So don't let these big words scare you. They're, they're not that scary. It just means the study of the end, the end times, what will happen on the last days when Jesus returns and he will bring final judgment and bring us into the new earth for eternity. And, and so what's going to happen in, in the end is what the disciples are asking. And so I don't have time to get into eschatology today. That would be a whole different series. But there is one verse verse 14 in this chapter that's very important. Because as Jesus unpacks in chapters 24 and 25, he talks about this age coming to an end, this evil age that is hostile to the gospel. Jesus talks about people's love will grow cold in the last days, that there will be false worldviews and false religions and false prophets. It says that people will be led astray by false prophets, that there's going to be famine and earthquakes and wars. And then he describes that evil will intensify and that persecution will intensify on the last days. And, and if you think about this, especially on this Mother's Day, Jesus in this chapter talks about birth pangs. Moms know birth. Moms know the pain of contractions and, and how the closer you get to the end of your pregnancy, the pain intensifies. It gets way, way more painful until the end comes and the pain stops. But then you have a child, and so the whole new kind of pain begins. <clears throat> That'll preach. The, the birth pangs might end, but that doesn't and all of the glory that is motherhood. Jesus is describing this intensifying, and he uses birth pangs as an illustration at the end. And in this whole conversation for two chapters about what's going to happen in the end, Jesus gives us a verse that is so key. He gives us a verse that helps us understand how the church must respond to this task, this mission that is unfinished. Far too many churches are responding with apathy. They just barely can care or comfort. More obsessed over building a bigger building and more programs and more comfort and have lost sight of the mission. And so how will this faith family respond to this massive, urgent need? These verses are so significant. And I'm going to give you three truths from this one verse that show us how the church is defined by this mission, what shapes us. And so let's read it, Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. 
So yes, he's describing the end. And so in this chapter, actually two chapters, talking about the end, he puts this, verse 14. It's so important talking about the end, that this gospel of the kingdom will be, not it might, not Jesus saying, I hope it will, not Jesus saying, well, if you guys get your act together, it might work out. It's not Jesus leaving it up to chance or leaving it up to human beings and their efforts. He says that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and testimony to all nations. And when that happens, when there are people from every single tribe and nation and tongue, every single people group, when every single people group has believers who worship Jesus, representing that people group, so they'll be in heaven with us, with every tribe, nation, and tongue, when people of all people groups have come to faith, not all of them, but some from each people group. The end will come. Jesus will return because his mission will be finished. And then, and then we will live forever, glorifying and praising him for his redemption, for his glory. But we're not there yet. As we heard from our associate pastor today, the mission is far from finished. We have a lot of work to do in Bell County and across the world. Let me give you the first truth that defines this church, really all churches, but we're talking about this one here in particular. The first one is message. So this first truth that defines us is we have a message. We are defined by this message. And what is this message? It says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. So this gospel of the kingdom, what is the gospel? The gospel, the word means good news. The gospel is the good news message. And it says that this message is the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. And so this message that we have is that there is a kingdom, Jesus is the king, and this is good news. Now, it's not good news for the enemy. Because in the ancient world, the enemy who would want to come and threaten the kingdom, the king would go out with his military and would go and attack the enemy and would send back a messenger who would bring back the news. And the news could be, we lost! Run! Like, and that was a legit thing. Like, that happened. The king's dead. Army is mowed over. They're coming. Pack up and run. That is still good news because you have a chance to get away. But this is not what's happened. Our king is victorious. He has gone out and defeated the enemy. And now the good news is the king has won. Victory is here. You have nothing to fear. Because our king is victorious. 
Indeed, it's good news. And it's good news because if you read the story of the Bible, beginning with Genesis, you see the original head, king, under God's authority, but still king of the earth, was Adam. And he was supposed to protect the people of God, defeat the enemy, crush the head of the serpent. Adam failed. The enemy won. He failed to establish the kingdom of God and have dominion on the earth and then have worshipers that would be global. And so the first head of humanity, Adam, failed. And instead of worshiping God, he aligned himself with the enemy, worshiped Satan, and now all of humanity follows in Adam's nature and as well as in his example, and we choose to sin, we choose to rebel against God's kingdom, we choose Satan. Left to ourselves, in our sinful nature, like Adam, we would choose our idols, and we choose Satan. And the reason why is Satan is a god of this age, and he is currently ruling, and you can see the marks of his kingdom with fear and with death, with evil, addiction, depression, Divorce, all of the evils that we see. And I'll give you one more example of this. Do you know where on this planet you hardly can't even get a flight to go into to even just visit? The 1040 window. You realize that? Oh, it's because of COVID. Really? Are you buying that? Do you actually believe that it's because of COVID that where the most unreached places on this planet is the exact places that you can't even get a flight to go in? It's almost as if there is an evil force using COVID to prevent the gospel from advancing. Because it is. And yet we have a king who's victorious. Where Adam failed, the new Adam did not fail. He did not worship Satan. He resisted temptation, and with his death and then resurrection, with his resurrection, he defeated the enemy. He defeated sin. He defeated death and Satan and all of his demonic forces. And so he thinks that he's going to use COVID to prevent the advancement of the kingdom, but Satan is so wrong. Just like he rejoiced when Jesus died. Oh, but Sunday was coming. He is rejoicing right now because because he thinks he's so smart because of COVID. He has shut down the 1040 window. But what he doesn't know is that God is already working in there. He has believers. And one day, and I pray soon, when, when it opens, we're going to find out everything that God is doing in the dark behind closed doors. And it's our privilege to just be a part of it. We have a message to proclaim. This is the message of the king who is victorious. The gospel of the kingdom. I want to read to you briefly 1 Corinthians 15. I know my time is going to just run out on me. I already know it. 1 Corinthians 15, 
22. For also in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming. Then those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. There it is again. Then comes the end. When he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's amazing. All of humanity is spiritually dead but Jesus came with his resurrection as he is the first fruits. He is the head, the first of a new humanity, a resurrected humanity, a made new humanity. Those who have his spirit and then have been brought from death back to life. A worshiping community who submits to the king, who wants to, who joyfully submits to King Jesus. And it says that he will deliver the kingdom of God, he says, to the Father. Jesus is establishing a kingdom, a holy nation made of priests before him. And it says that he'll do this after destroying the enemy, for he must reign. So he has put all enemies under his feet. He's going to squash the enemies and crush the head of the serpent. And it says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So yes, death has not yet been destroyed, but it has lost its sting. It has lost its power over believers because just like death could not hold Jesus, death cannot hold those who are in Christ who belong to his kingdom because the king went out and the good news is not run. The good news is Victory. The good news is the enemy is defeated, and now we can live in peace and in hope because our king is greater. And he has vanquished the enemy. And he is restoring a people into his kingdom. Now, when we think about this, God is all-sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful. And for some of you, you've experienced a lot of pain at the hands of people that had authority over you. You have experienced disappointment or abuse. And so the idea of having someone that has authority or power over you is just terrifying to you because you're afraid. And maybe you feel like, whoa, this is scary. Trusting King Jesus is very scary. Can I trust him? Is he going to be good to me? Will he take care of me? Jesus is a different kind of king. And the world economy and just normal human rulers, politicians and rulers of this world, they abuse their people. But Jesus is unlike human rulers. He is God in the flesh, and so he is good and wise. So yes, he is a king. Yes, he has authority, but he's a different kind of king. You see, in the world, 
Kings are not servants. Think about that for a second. In the world, kings are never servants. And servants are never kings. But with Jesus, he's both. He is the king. And he is a servant. He breaks all the categories of human rulers and is a good and wise king who provides and loves you. And everything that he does works towards your blessing and his glory. So that in his kingdom, under his authority, you know what you can do? Rest. Does your soul need rest? This truth of this message of the kingdom defines who we are. We have a message. Number two, second truth we see in this verse is we have a mission. So we do have this message to proclaim, but we have a particular mission. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. So that's the message, the gospel. And it says where? Throughout the whole world as testimony to all nations. So we have a message to proclaim and a mission to accomplish with that message. Remember, we're Matthew 24. Eight chapters earlier, Matthew 16, Jesus said something very important. Talking about the church pushing back the darkness and attacking the kingdom of darkness led by Satan. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. She says, I will build my church. My church will go and penetrate the darkness, destroy the gates of hell itself, will rescue people out of slavery in the kingdom of darkness, and bring them into his glorious light, into the kingdom of Jesus. And so we are in a war zone. We are. We can forget that but we should not because the church is the focal point of God's mission. It is accomplished by the local church. Churches that are designed to be on mission that multiply and plant more churches. So the church's mission is to take this gospel, this message and proclaim it to all nations. See people come to faith, gather them in churches, disciple them, and then send them out to plant more churches, to have more worshipers that will worship Jesus forevermore. This is the point. This is what we do locally and globally. It's all about sharing in this beautiful message that leads us to this mission to proclaim it, to see churches planted that leads to worshipers. Number three, lastly, we have a motivation. So we see in verse 24, or chapter 24, verse 14, the message to proclaim is what? The gospel of the kingdom, that's the message. What is the mission? Proclaim it to all nations. What is the motivation? And then the end will come. In talking about motivation, there's lots of ways to motivate people, tons of ways. And churches oftentimes have mastered guilt motivation. Oh, I've seen it. Oh, my goodness. I, I've, 
<sighs> embarrassed to admit I've been on church staffs that do it. And then talking about ways, but we never admitted it, but we all knew it, that it was all guilt motivation. And so I've seen it, I've done it, I've repented of it from many years ago, and I want no part of it. Guilt can motivate you. It's a powerful motivator. But you know what? It's short-lived. And then you have burnout and bitterness. And you're hurt. And then you probably quit the church because I know a lot of your stories. I've heard. It's painful. And so any kind of guilt motivation is not what will motivate us to be on mission here and across the planet. You know what else can motivate you? Fear. Fear is a powerful motivator. You can be afraid of whatever, and that can propel you to take action. And yet fear is not a godly motivation because God's perfect love does what? Casts out fear. And so then fear cannot be what motivates us. It could be pride. And this is really big among believers where we're motivated to do things because we get the praise of other people. And we would never say that out loud. But in our hearts, it's true that we can be motivated to do godly missional things all because the applause of fellow believers. But that will not sustain you on the mission field, locally or globally. It won't. It can't. You know what else can, can motivate you? Being sad. Sadness can motivate you. You can, you can sit in here and hear all of the pain and the lostness in our planet, and you can be so sad about that 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 can actually motivate you. But will that sustain you? No. No. Because what we're doing here is God's work, not man's. And so it cannot be in our own power. These motivations are doomed to fail. Human effort cannot motivate you to sacrifice your life and give it for the mission. There is one reality that will motivate you to be on mission. And you know what it is? Tasting God's eternal, sovereign love. That will motivate you. Tasting, savoring, knowing God's sovereign, eternal love. He says, and the end will come. That is the motivation, is the end of being with Jesus. You are part of something eternal that's way bigger than you or me. Let me give you a brief overview from Ephesians 1. This is just an excerpt. You can read it on your own, the, the whole chapter of God's eternal sovereign love and how that motivates us. Ephesians 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace, 
It continues, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. And then it says, according to his purpose. You see, in eternity past, before you were even conceived, before your mother gave birth to you, God already knew you. And he loved you. In love, he chose you before the creation of the world. And right now, God loves you. You can't be more loved than you are right now. I know you look in the mirror some days and you see the struggles and the failure, the disappointment, and you, and you, you think, really? Like, really, God loves me? Yes, you are his handiwork. You are his masterpiece. You should not criticize God's masterpiece. You should praise him for it, for how he has beautifully, fearfully made you. You have been loved from eternity past. You are being loved right now, fully, completely, in all of your messed upness. He loves you. And he sent Jesus to die, to rescue you, to renew you. And he loves you in that. And then when you die, you're resurrected. You will live forever and experience his eternal love. And so you are part of an eternal love from eternity past, today, into eternity future. You are loved. This sovereign eternal love is the only reality that will sustain you. Look, I'm telling you this Firsthand, I have lived overseas in the 1040 window in the Middle East. I've been there. I've lived there. I've seen it. And it can seem impossible. It can seem overwhelming. And what will sustain you? God's sovereignty. Knowing that he has promised that people from every single tribe, nation, and tongue will be there in heaven. And so, therefore, I can go with confidence and say, you know what? This person may reject me, but they don't reject me. They're rejecting Jesus. But I have hope and confidence that there are people in every people group that will come to faith because Jesus has promised the mission belongs to him. It's not ours. It's his. Let me just, let me just tell you something in case you were unaware. God does not need you. Never has, never will. We get to be part of what he's doing. I understand a day like today, for some of you, is mixed emotions. For some of you, you, you hear all the stats and you're so grieved. And so I think that there's two main responses to what we're experiencing today. One is anxiety. Some of you right here, right now, are experiencing significant anxiety. Why? Because you want to go. 
and you feel like for whatever reason, in God's calling, situation, circumstances, you can't. Others of you have anxiety because it seems so massive and overwhelming. And you feel paralyzed or you feel guilty for not doing enough or going or for not giving enough or whatever it is. And so some of you in here for different reasons right now are experiencing anxiety. Now, others of you aren't anxious at all. Like you're like, no, I'm not anxious, pastor. I'm good. Your problem is not anxiety. Your problem is apathy. You don't care. You got your job, your 401k, your investments to look at, you rationalize, I'm not called to that. I'm not super Christian. There are some people that do that, that have that crazy calling, but that's not me. I live here. I've got my business here, my family, my mom, my whatever, I'm here. And you just shut that out and say, I don't want to know. That's not for me. That's not my calling. And so you have a heart that possibly is apathetic. And if we're honest, for some of us in the room, it's lazy. You just haven't caught the vision of what Jesus is actually about. That it's about the nations. Glorifying him for his worthiness. And by the way, anxiety and apathy are both unbiblical. They're from the flesh from the enemy. They're not from the spirit. So if you're experiencing either apathy or anxiety, then that is neither one is healthy. Both are from the flesh. When you're resting in God's sovereign love, it produces peace, which will keep you from the anxiety. It also produces confidence to go. and fighting through the apathy. You see, we live in an amazing time in human history, in this now, but not yet. Now, redeemed, regenerated, being sanctified, justified, know Jesus, now, awaiting our final resurrection glorification. So now saved, now in the kingdom, but not yet completed, not yet. And we live in this beautiful tension and God wants to work in that. And honestly, days like today, you don't even know. You have no idea what this does to me and Bonnie. Like, psh, this kind of a sermon series and all those stats, Colton, you just wrecked my day, bro. Because now on Mother's Day, I have my wife who's in tears and says, when are we going to go back? And I'm like, I don't know, but I want to. But there's this thing called Renewal Church that's still a baby, and we're not... We're not ready to leave yet, and God hasn't released us yet, and so I don't know, but let me tell you, this is harder for me than you probably have any idea. Living in Texas and not in the 1040 window is quite painful, but God has a purpose in it. Man, I get FOMO. You know FOMO? Fear of missing out. Like, I get FOMO bad. We get to. We don't have to. Forget the guilt. Don't you want to be a part of this? 
Like, what do you want your life to be about? What, when you're done, what do you want instead of your life? Had great investments. Had a big house. I drove new cars. Oh my gosh, it's going to burn. Who cares? Who cares? Eternity is in the balance, and there are people that don't know, and we are called to be on mission and tasting God's eternal sovereign love gives us new desires, a new heart that says, I care and I want to be a part of this, whatever it looks like. And so God, here I am, palms open. Not clutching at my life, just open. God, what do you want from me? Where do you want me to go? How much should I give? You're my king, and you're worthy of it all, and I get you, so what else do I even need? Lead me. When this is so real to you, you will want to reach your friends and neighbors. You will want to ask the question, am I willing to go? Look, we're working on solidifying partnerships in the 1040 window to provide venues for us to engage in. But right now, it's a challenging season to even get there. But are you willing to go? You know, in terms of the mission, there's three kinds of believers, and that's it. There's goers, people that go. There's senders, those that mobilize and allow others to go, support and send them. And then there's the disobedient. That's it. There's only three. Are you going to be a goer or a sender or disobedient? Because there's no fourth category. And we are so privileged beyond our comprehension that God has chosen us, loved us, and he sends us out. And that we get to be part of something glorious and eternal and soul satisfying. He is literally inviting us to be a part of his purpose of making his name known. So I'll ask you one more time. What do you want to live for? And this gospel of the kingdom we proclaimed throughout the world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This defines us. Family, we have a message and a mission and a motivation, which is a very love of God. This defines us. One day Christ will return. He will end this evil age. The urgent mission will be finished. But until then, we're called to finish the mission. No anxiety, no apathy. We go with confidence, fueled by God's love.